This is actually our, our youth room. It's called the barn. This used to uh, really have a lot of animals in it, and then uh, and then we put the youth in it. And actually, this is a this is an old adobe building. This is a protected building in San Juan Capistrano. So you're sitting in a very historic building up on the hill. Well, I'm right at home uh, here in a barn, <laughs> and uh, that's no yoke. Eleven years ago, Shelter Cove Community Church began in a barn, a Bible study in a barn, and that's the truth, and uh, uh, only about 800 people showed up in that barn, so uh, we, had a, we had a great, uh, a great four weeks in the barn, and then God just led us one place after another, and now we've got uh, a church building that doesn't look like a church. But we're committed to reach the next generation, and uh, we are. And that's our goal, and we thank God for that. It's a real privilege to be here with you. We've got a gorgeous setting here. You've got millions of people around you that need Christ and the truth, don't you? My prayer, even Ruth and I, when we always on the way to church, we always pray. I keep my eyes open as I drive, but we pray. And we prayed for you and for your pastor this morning, Neil, and uh, for this church that it would truly grow to be an incredible, powerful place where the Word of God is taught clearly and people come to know Christ as Savior. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to uh, the end of your Bible. So Revelation is always easy for most people to find. And uh, this is not exactly a sword drill, but uh, we'll ask you just to turn to that passage. The question that we want to deal with today is, you know, the whole series, what will happen in the last days? Today I want to talk with you about, is there a hell? Is there a hell? My friend, this is the last day in God's courtroom. That's the passage of Scripture that we're going to read. Before we read it and pray, let me tell you, it was a few years ago that Ruthie and I went to Spain on a little mission trip. We were with our good friends, Dr. Manny and Glenda Fernandez, a board on which I've served for many years, an evangelistic church planting force that multiplies churches in a number of locations around the world. Eleven years ago, we started in Cuba, and you can fully support a full-time evangelist Bible teacher in Cuba for $25 a month. Thank God for communism. <laughs> well, you've you got to think about it, how God uses it. There are 7,000 church plants in Cuba today in 11 years. Amazing what is happening. Just stay under the radar and keep preaching and teaching Jesus and making disciples. And uh, that's just one of the places. But we were in Madrid, Spain. We were there to see the seminary and to teach in the seminary of WorldLink uh, Ministries. And uh, Ruthie and I got on this train in Madrid along with uh, Manny and Glenda. It was supposed to be a sleeper train. You were supposed to be able to sleep at night. We had a berth. I'll tell you, anybody could sleep on that plane would have to be drunk out of their mind. <laughs> all night long, you know. But anyway, we finally got all the way down to Gibraltar. And then we took a ferry over into North Africa, Morocco. Play it again, Sam, okay? And uh, I was reminded, being in Gibraltar, of a historical fact. At one time, Spain controlled both sides of the narrowest part of the Strait of Gibraltar. They still own a little tip of northern Africa called Ceuta. And at that narrowing of the two land masses, Africa and Europe, there was a huge marker. It was called the Pillar of Hercules. And prior to Columbus's voyage in 1492, it had three words chiseled on it in Latin. Ne plus Ultra. No more beyond. It was right there. Nothing more beyond. 
And no one would dare question the prevailing conviction that the western horizon, I mean, you just looked out there, you knew nothing was out there. Well, of course, after Columbus's discovery of a new world beyond Spain, there was a revised outlook, wasn't there? And coins were imprinted with a new logo in Latin. Not three words, two words. Ne plus ultra, no, just plus ultra. More beyond. Amen? You know, many seem to believe that there's no more beyond in this life. But those who have discovered the new life in Jesus Christ now know that there is plus ultra. There is more beyond. There's a heaven, and my friend, there is a hell. And uh, every age has had those who have wanted to erase hell. You know, the issue is what does God's Word say today? Okay? You see, the sobering news is that there are only two kinds of life awaiting us after death. One form of eternal life will be spent enjoying the presence of God. And the other will be spent excluded from Him. If this is not the most serious, sobering, tragic passage of Scripture, in all of Scripture... It has to be way up there in the very, very top. Are you ready? Revelation 20, verse 11. Then John says, I saw. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Father, we pray that in the moments that we spend together around this, uh, this horrible topic, Lord, a subject that we rarely ever hear proclaimed from the pulpits of the church today. But Holy Spirit, we just want to listen to you. We want to have those ears that hear. We pray, Lord, that you would not only help us hear facts, that you would impart to us a burden and a passion for lost people who are on their way to this place. Minister encouragement to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there a hell? Notice it's a great white throne. Great because of the issues that are involved and settled here. But also white because it involves perfection and purity regarding the decisions that are handed down. It is a white throne. First of all, I want to remind you about our God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. He's a God of truth. He is without injustice. So as we move into this thing about hell, I want you to know that the Bible says righteous and upright is he. There's a rhetorical question that God asked Abraham. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? What's the answer? Yes, he will. Now what we have here, this is very similar to a courtroom, but it's different. Yes, there's a judge. Yes, there's a prosecutor. Yes, there's a sentence handed down, but there's no jury. There's no defense attorney. There's no appeal. This is the final answer from the judge of the entire world. By the way, guess who is sitting as judge? The one to whom Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 27, that all judgment has been handed over to the Son. 
Now in verse 13, the second part, it says, They were judged, each one according to his works, according to what he had done. Each one will clearly see not only why he's doomed, he will be left with no arguments, his mouth will be silenced, there will be no excuses, the critical evidence will be unfolded for him to clearly see, the Bible says, and books were opened. You have a video camera? My uh, assistant, well, I get her about six hours a week if I'm lucky. But she loaned me a camera to take on this Philippine uh, missionary trip that I took back in June, and I was amazed at this little thing. I mean, it, it just is more clear than my camera on my phone, but I could switch that thing into video mode. And uh, bam, there it was, and then I could transfer it to the internet and I can put it on my computer and I can show it and it was just amazing but if you have a video camera and a DVD library recording important events in your family's life Ruth and I just laughed our heads off the other day we went back 24 years on a DVD and we watched all the grandkids one after another be born and start to take their first steps and Chad who is now six three or four Hits the golf ball 300 yards way past Grandpa. But there he was on our back porch, and I put the putter in his hand. And I'd like to tell you the first word that he ever said was Jesus, but it wasn't. It was ball. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, got, we got DVD libraries, don't we? Well, what if you had to face a judgment where every single deed you ever did was scrutinized under a holy light? I get sweaty palms just thinking about that. So let's think about the words before we get into this passage, the usage of words, Hades. Hades is used 59 times in the Old Testament, translates the Hebrew word Sheol, from which we get the word grave. It means grave. It means the place of the departed. It is used 10 times in the New Testament and translated with the word hell. In Greek literature, it, it meant unseen referring to a place where the souls of lost people, unbelievers, are presently confined, Hades, while they wait for this, this day, the final day of judgment. Hades does not refer to a physical grave. It's an intermediate temporary state between physical death and the final judgment, the lake of fire. Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Look at verse 14. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of what? Fire. You get a second word in the Bible called the abyss. It's used eight times, six of which are in the book of Revelation. Abyss. It refers to an extremely deep place. It's translated by the word deep or the bottomless pit. In Revelation 9, if you were with us, it's that place out of which those demonic spirits came to torture the world. In Revelation 11.7 and 17.8, it's also the place from which the coming world ruler, the beast, arises. It's where Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verses 1 and 3. That's the abyss. There's Tartarus. Tartarus. No, that's not the sauce you put on your fish. Okay, this is different. It's only used in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It's used as a verb. It's the place where fallen angels or demons go all the way back to Genesis 6. They're confined waiting for their final judgment, mentioned also in the apocryphal book of Enoch. Then you have the word Gehenna. Gehenna, used 12 times in the New Testament, comes from the Hebrew words Gehinnom, the valley of Hinnom. You stand at the place where Peter denied the Lord, Peter a Gallican too, and you look down into that valley in Jerusalem. And that was the place that was always associated with idolatry and inhuman sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. And it always was burning with fire. And uh, Gehenna is also called the second death because it's a place of final separation from God. Number one. 
Oh, that's the usage of words. Okay, there it is. Uh, as we just look at the words which are used in the Bible, and now we move to nine facts about hell. Number one, according to the Scriptures, Luke chapter 16, verse 22 to 23, and in Luke 16 is an incredible story. Is it real? Some say, well, no, it's just a story that Jesus told. Then why are the names given? Why are all these details so specific? It appears to me that Jesus is doing very best to tell us what is on the other side. Hell is the place where all unbelievers will go when they die. Luke 16, verse 22, the time came when the beggar, his name is Lazarus, and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. I noticed that both men continue to exist. Plus ultra. More beyond. But a split second after the rich man died, he woke up in a terrifying place called hell. And a split second after... Lazarus died. The angels escorted his soul into a place of comfort. And Jesus tells us that hell is a real place of conscious anguish, while heaven is a place of comfort and reward. Was the rich man just dreaming? Well, he was very conscious of his surroundings. The Bible says he could feel, he could speak. He experienced this amazing thirst, and he hurt and in verse 22 of Luke 16, he pleads, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in agony in this fire. So what happens when the day of death comes to all men? It was only after both men died that God's judgment became clear. Heaven and hell Immediate destinations after death. Not the final hell. But the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the what? Judgment. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, however, he said, Today you will be with me in a place Jesus then called paradise. And that's what we see Lazarus experiencing. But if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. 21 and verse 8. And uh, as you look at this, uh, John is giving a wonderful description of heaven. We're going to hear more about this. But in terms of a great contrast, suddenly you read verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a contrast to the wonderful description that John is laying out about heaven. Why is this here? It's here to show us that heaven will be everything that this life and this earth cannot be for one reason. The presence of sin and darkness and evil. The problem that you and I have of getting into heaven is our sin. There won't be any sin in heaven. So if something isn't done to deal with our sin, my friend, we will never see the inside of the pearly gates. There's a list of nouns in Revelation 21, verse 8, that reflect the character that is contrary to the holiness of heaven. And those who die yet in their sins continue to carry with them the guilt and pain of a sinful character. Those are all nouns. Please notice. Unbelieving, abominable, wicked, liars. When you see that, that's describing a character. And yet God has clearly stated, has he not, that receiving the water of eternal life is without cost to you. And so the actions of those who miss heaven confirm that you know what? They never really wanted. Or they have never chosen God's Son. This is a listing of the kind of people who cannot be a part of heaven, my friend. No true believer's life is characterized by this list. Cannot be. The ones who miss heaven do so for one reason. They refuse to take the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to wash 
away their guilt. They are unbelievers who characters, whose character accurately reflects who they really are. And so hell is a place where all believers go when they die. I notice the Bible says that hell is the place where many religious people go when they die. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you will. Matthew is filled with words from Jesus about hell. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, today you have those uh, like Rob Bell and many others who, who like to talk about a, a wide gate, an open gate. Well, Jesus said something about the wide gate, didn't he? But he didn't say there's a wide gate that will lead you to heaven, my friend. You can go this way or this way or this way or this way and you'll all end up. No, no, he didn't say that at all. What did he say? He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. Many go in by that broad gate, but narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In fact, drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of God. The first step in doing the will of God is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, 29. What shall we do to do the will of God? Believe. Jesus said on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to work for your salvation? You want to do something for your salvation? Well, in a way, we all do. Jesus said, here's what you must do. Believe. John 6, 29. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, in this section of, G of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had just marveled at the faith of a Roman soldier boss, a Gentile centurion. He marveled. In fact, it's one of the two places in the Bible where Jesus marveled. He marveled at the face of the Gentile, marveled at the unbelief of the Jews. He marveled. He had not found such great faith among God's chosen people, Israel. And this led him to point out that in the coming kingdom, Gentiles from all over the world, by the grace of God, are going to enjoy fellowship with the Jewish patriarchs while the sons of the kingdom would be thrown out into outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom, those who were Jews by birth, professing, of course, because of their birth to know God, who were never truly converted. You know, many ch children privileged to be raised in, in our homes, in Christian homes, if they reject Christ, they're going to perish in a place the Bible calls hell. While jungle natives may enjoy the eternal glories of heaven if they will hear the gospel and just repent and believe. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus said, You snakes, you brood of vipers. Who's he talking to? Scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders. How will you escape being condemned to hell? He said. Hell is also the place that God has prepared for Satan and the demons. Now, here is a thought that has always helped me greatly. And I've tried to share it many times to people who don't understand about God. I think it's a powerful thing. God never made hell for you. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, in fact, it's a key verse. And what Jesus told us about hell, he said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Now why would Jesus point that out? And the only ones that are sent there are those who obviously reject God's gracious provision of pardon for their sin. Friend, there's nowhere else for you to go. Now, this final hell may already exist, but right now it's unoccupied. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, gives you this as an example. 
also in Jude 6. We're going to look at both of them. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And then Jesus goes, uh, uh, Peter goes on to say that if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Did you hear that? Jude, verse 6 and 7, also refer to this. And I want to make a point to you. The angels who did not keep their position of authority, verse 6, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. We've just read about it in Revelation chapter 20, 11 to 15. He says in verse 7, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, those five cities of the plain, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, And then Jude says, as if we need this, you better believe we do. Those cities serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. They do? Yeah. That's why whenever we go to Israel, we stand on the top of Masada. And the last time we went, a couple days ago, we, we, a couple years ago, we were thrilled to have four of our older grandsons with us. And I gathered the boys, and I got the whole group around, but I wanted the boys to be right next to me, four boys. And I said, look out over the Dead Sea and tell me what you boys see. They looked out over there and said, Grandpa, we don't see anything. I said, well, no, 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 yes, you do. What do you see? Well, there's just nothing out there but wasteland. And I said, all right, keep looking that way. The Bible says that that used to be just verdant and green and luxury. It was just a beautiful garden like the Garden of Eden. Is that what you see now? You know, and it just kept pressing me. No, that is not what we see. Let me read you a verse. Abraham, Genesis 19:28, looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Bible says he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. And then we read the passage. By the way, the passage doesn't say that 10% of them were homosexual. It doesn't say that 25% of the town was homosexual. It says that every man was pounding on the door. There's an emphasis in that passage that all Everything was incinerated in that judgment. Left little more than ash. And I suggest to you there is no example in the world of any natural disaster resembling the phenomena that is found today at these sites. And so I wanted to see for myself so I talked to one of my friends in the going, and we were on top of Masada in June, and it was it was hotter than it's going to be here today, let me tell you. <laughs> we had shorts on. We each had a, a two-liter bottle of water. I said, Lee, let's go. Walked off the backside of Masada, and we went out into that area. We walked as long as we could, knowing that we would have to walk that way back to get on the bus. How many of you have been there? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, we went out there, and we went down in these incredible areas, and we looked at this stuff. And, and I have a picture of myself just taking a whole piece of this in layers, and it just breaks. And if you squeeze it, it just crushes, just like dried Ash. In fact, throughout the sites, and this is what I was looking for, I didn't get down where I wanted to go someday. I, I would love to have one of these on, on, in glass on my desk. And I'm talking about the very unusual balls of pure sulfur that have been found in this area. By the way, they still burn today if they are lit. And the lab analysis indicates that they're 98.4% pure sulfur, more pure than naturally occurring sulfur. 
1928, Dr. Melvin Kyle wrote this. It's a region on which brimstone was rained, and he said such a region will show brimstone. Well, he said it does. We picked up pure sulfur in pieces as big as the end of my thumb. It is mixed with the marl of the mountains on the west side of the sea, and now is to be found scattered along the shore of the sea, even on the east side, some four or five miles distant from the ledge that contains the stratum. It has somehow scattered far and wide over this plain. Josephus, in his Wars of the Jews, book 4, chapter 8, says, Now this country is so badly burnt up that nobody cares to come at it. So badly what? Burnt. It was of old a most happy land, both for the fruits it bore and the riches of its cities, although it be now all burnt up. It is related how, for the impiety of its inhabitants, it was burnt by lightning, in consequence of which there are still the remainders of that divine fire and the traces or shadows of the five cities are still to be seen. Josephus' description perfectly describes what can be seen at those sites today. The account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the plain is not a fairy tale, my friend. It's a historical event that occurred exactly as the biblical account presented it. And today the evidence still remains. As Jude wrote, these cities serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. You go down there and you realize that hell, my friend, is not a laughing matter. Hell is where coming world leaders will go. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20, the Bible says the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. Chapter 19, verse 20. And with these signs, the false prophet had deluded those who received the mark of the beast, worshipped his image. Now watch this statement. You tell me what it says. The two of them were thrown alive into the what? Fiery lake, the lake of fire of burning sulfur. Literally, it says this, alive. While still conscious, they were thrown, these two, into the lake of fire. It was these two who persuaded the people of the world to turn their worship away from the one true living God. to The one God describes as a beast. The people of God now have suffered greatly at their hands, and God now pours out his wrath upon them. And so the beast and his false prophet will be the first occupants of the eternal lake of fire. They suffer the horrors of eternal punishment for a thousand years before the rest of unbelievers in verse 15 of what we read. But in chapter 20 and verse 10, look at that please. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So now we've got the beast and false prophet in there and now we have the devil thrown in there and the Bible simply says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yes, hell is where coming world leaders will go. You know, Jesus said that hell is a place of complete darkness. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, he says the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Believe it or not, the meek and mild, compassionate Jesus is the primary source that we have on hell. Do you know that? Matthew 22, verse 13, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot. Jesus is speaking. Throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30, Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting. Hell is place, a place both of darkness and of fire. How's that work? I don't know. It's a combination not found in our present world. Part of the supernatural quality of hell is that it will be a place of fire, pain, torment that will continue for all eternity, yet in total darkness. Number six, the Bible says that hell is a place of torment. A place of torment. Back to where we began in 
in the story of Lazarus and the rich man called Dives in Luke chapter 16, verse 23, from his place of torment, this lost rich man looks up and he calls out the name Father Abraham. And as Jesus told this story, I can almost see he's telling it in front of the scribes and Pharisees and I can see their faces flinch. Because you see, the Pharisees believed that all you needed to get to heaven was a birth certificate proving that you were a physical descendant of Abraham. And Jesus said that God is able to raise descendants from these stones. What a striking way to remind these religious leaders that being born in the right family was no guarantee of your salvation. In this foyer to hell, the rich man is aware of the comfort and delight of those up above. It's almost as though hell has kind of a one-way see-through window where each lost person is issued a telescope and they can see up. But it appears that those above could not see down. I remind you, he's fully awake. And then he cries out for mercy and relief. And this one who all of his life rejected the teaching of Abraham's God, his character was clear. He now cries for what he didn't give. He wants mercy. And this is the one who refused to respond to the cry of human need that was on his own front porch day after day after day. A sobering thought, friend, all mercy is ended in hell. Jesus said, weeping and gnashing of teeth over and over again. In Luke chapter 13, verse 27, But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Imagine speaking to religious leaders of his day. I know. Some say that when we die, we'll just cease to exist. We won't hear, we won't see, we won't feel a blooming thing. C.S. Lewis was told about a gravestone inscription that read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis quietly replied, I'll bet he wishes that were so. And then he said, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. No, my friend. Every description of hell that Jesus gives is one of conscious suffering, torment, and agony, not annihilation. Death is not the end. Don't you hang on to that old pillar, nothing beyond. We know that there's more beyond. It's not like the period at the end of a sentence. No, death is only a comma. There's a forever existence after death. Number seven, heaven or hell is a place. You see, I want to default to heaven. I, <clears throat> I want to get out of this hell. And I don't even like to talk about it. I haven't preached this message at our church yet, but I'm going to. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. Fire is used more than 20 times in the New Testament to depict the torment of hell. And I'm going to just read some scriptures quickly. I want you to listen for the word fire, fire, fire. Jesus said he will baptize. John said he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he's going to come to his threshing floor and he's going to take the, the chaff and he's going to throw it in everlasting fire. In Matthew 5.22, anyone who says you fool, Jesus said will be danger in danger of the fire of hell. In Matthew 13, verse 41, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age, they will throw them, all who do evil, into the fiery furnace. Matthew 13, verse 50, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Matthew 18, verse 9, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Mark 9, 45 to 48, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off 
It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Revelation 19 and verse 20, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake. Chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 10, the lake of burning sulfur. Verse 14 and 15, we've already read, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. There have been untold attempts to avoid the plain meaning of these passages. Some attempt to spiritualize the lake of fire as a mere symbol. But I tell you, I've looked and looked and looked. I can't find a blooming thing in Revelation that suggests that there's any hope on the other side of that lake. If the fire is symbolic, then the reality that it represents will be even more horrific and painful. You say, how can God do this? Wait a minute. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. God says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. Hell is a place of everlasting punishment. I want you to take your Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. Matthew 25 and verse 46. In verse 41, Jesus said, and we've already read it, then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, and the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But you see, many will say this. Does God really punish people forever? We even have many people that believe in a teaching called purgatory today. And of course people believe in purgatory because they've been taught that there is a purgatory and that's why the Bible says that teachers will be in danger of a more severe judgment. And so they think after I spend some time in hell, okay, then I'll be able to get out. Well, in hell, the rich man even begged Abraham to send Lazarus with some water to alleviate his pain, but his cries were futile. Absolutely zero biblical basis for purgatory. The Bible says that once someone has died, there's no way to cross over from hell to heaven. It's not about a fire that will purify your sins temporarily. What's 1 John say? Verse 7, if we walk in the light, He's faithful and He will cleanse us from all our sin. If we confess our sin, He's faithful, righteous, He will forgive us all our sin. This is not about temporarily getting rid of some of your sin. There's so many things that are wrong with the teaching of purgatory, but that's just one. Hell is going to be real and as lasting as heaven. Look at this, verse 46, Matthew 25. These will go away into temporary punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Right? No. I'm glad you have your Bible. Though you got an iPad, but you at least got your Bible on it. Right, David? Okay. I'm checking on you. You better have a Bible. And you better check it. Because there are guys like me that are going to give you twists on these things, and you need to be smart enough to catch it. No, that doesn't say that. The plain teaching of the Bible is everlasting. By the way, the two words are the same in the Greek. Aeonios, everlasting. Aeonios, eternal. And aeonios means never time to cease. That's what it means. And if you've got an everlasting heaven, my friend, Jesus said you've got an everlasting hell. You got this? That's such a key verse. Put a box around that verse in your Bible. 
Jesus and the New Testament writers used every image in their power to tell us how real hell is. And it's horrible. It's something to be feared and avoided. Mark 3, 28, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. That's the same word, aeonios. A blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, yeah, the Holy Spirit convicts you about your need to come to Christ and about your sin, and you refuse, you resist Him, you say no. There's no forgiveness for that sin, is there? None. Revelation 14, 9 to 11, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Same word. Revelation 20, verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said their worm does not die. Nothing in these passages hold out hope for a second chance after death. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole in a prison from which no one ever escapes. That's what the Bible teaches, number nine. Hell is the one place you don't. You don't want to take that exit, my friend. You don't want to go there. There's an epitaph and an old tombstone, and I saw it in Plymouth, Massachusetts. This was one of the oldest graveyards in America, and we're going to be taking a trip there in October with all the leaves and everything. But it says this, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you shall be. Prepare for death and follow me. And someone came along and inscripted additional words. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> That's good advice. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus said, It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Matthew 18, verse 8 and 9. Mark 9, 43 to 48. Better to lose a hand, a foot, or an eye than to go to hell. Not a place where you want to go. You see, the Bible says that we should fear the one who can cast us into hell. Oh, how often we live in fear of men. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who can kill your body. They cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ever since the fall, Satan, the father of lies, has deceived people about the reality of coming judgment. He's deceived sinners into believing that they can live as they please without the fear of ultimate accountability or future punishment. Oh, no. My friend, nothing in life is more important than escaping the judgment of hell. You think about it. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26? He said, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? That's what you call hyperbole, isn't it? That's major hyperbole. That's taking it to way beyond. Yet what good will it be if he forfeits his own soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What do I do? Well, Jesus clearly taught that it requires repentance. Unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. He said that again and again. At the end of the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, it was found. Jesus said, I tell you, in the same way there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repentance is necessary, but it also requires faith. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say unto you, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned. Do you believe in hell? I want to ask you that. Do you believe? Just answer here, just for yourself. 
Let me remind you that the one, the most compassionate heart of anyone spoke often of heaven. Spoke often of heaven. The Bible says in the passage that we read that the book of life was opened and the books of works were opened. And I can just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ with his nail-wounded hand turning the pages as you stand there. Longing to find your name in the book of life. Until, as he looks, it is clear. No name such as yours written there. And finally, that great book is closed. And we hear the words, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Maybe at that time, as a last-ditch effort, somebody sputters, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name, didn't I? I never knew you. Saddest words ever uttered. Those words will ring in the ears for all eternity. I never, never knew you. No wonder Jesus told his disciples to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the words of an old song, is my name written there on the page bright and fair? In the book of God's kingdom, is my name written there in the Lamb's book of life? My friend, here's what God did to keep you out of hell. He gave his own son on the cross. He laid the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine, on Jesus. He took my hell. And he took yours. He took our judgment. That's what God did. Now what does God say that you have to do? He who believes in me is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me ask you this before we pray. Pastor Neal, does anyone criticize a fireman when he's trying to rescue a family from a burning house? No. So if all of us would become firemen and try and rescue people, you might get some criticism. Is that okay, church? Fireman's got to do his job. See, it's a life or death issue, isn't it? Let's pray.